We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome once again to our Wednesday night Zoom presentations for the parish. And once again, we're going to have part two of homeopathy, that particular topic, as well as a vaccine update. So let's begin with an introduction before we introduce Pam Acker again to discuss this important topic. At the age of 31 years old, the great Augustine of Hippo was already the professor of rhetoric in the great court in Milan, Italy, a very prestigious position to say the least. He was highly respected and had a promising career ahead of him. But at that particular point, he was living in agony because the intellectual world he had occupied was collapsing. And on top of this, Augustine had given himself over to all kinds of bad behavior, licentious behavior. Augustine became more attracted, though, to the truths of Christianity. But because he was in bondage to his sensual pleasures, he was again in agony. He went out behind his house and into a garden where he could sit in the grass under a tree. And as he sat there, he became very agitated. He finally got up and went over to a fig tree and fell down on his knees, weeping uncontrollably. In his book called The Confessions, he said that he began to cry out using the words of Psalm 13, How long, O Lord? Augustine prayed like that, and he received an unusual answer. As he cried out to the Lord, he heard a little voice, like a child's sort of sing-song voice. He later said, quote, I don't know if it was a boy or a girl, but it was clearly children. That was the voice he heard. And they were singing this little phrase, tole legge, tole legge. That's Latin for take up and read. Read the scriptures, the Bible, the inerrant word of God. When Augustine heard that command, tole legge, take up and read, he heard it was God's speaking to him. Augustine opened the Bible and his eyes fell upon St. Paul's letters to the Romans, chapter 13, quote, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousies, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, unquote. Take up and read. And Augustine was further and further converted to the faith. Wisdom was ever more flowing into him. During our presentation last week, our guest, Pam Acker, told us a little about the founder of homeopathy, namely Samuel Hahnemann. Although brought up in a Protestant household, 
he became a religious free thinker, believing that God permeated every living thing. He was also, as Pam told us, a Freemason with an affinity, as most of them have, towards the esoteric and the occult. In connection with homeopathy, Hanuman seems to have believed that he was divinely chosen and guided in his work. He made it clear that he believed that his new doctrine of homeopathy was inspired by God. Hanuman considered the succussion, that is sort of the sort of banging and shaking violently, in the course of making homeopathic dilutions was most effective when fluid containers were banged on a leather-bound book, preferably, he said, a leather-bound Bible. Instead of taking up and reading the sacred scriptures, Hahnemann would suggest banging, striking vigorously and concussing the homeopathic dilutions and containers against a leather-bound Bible. To end this introduction, in my cursory look at the topic, of course, Pam has looked at this quite extensively, but in my short look at this topic, I've noted a few things that are most concerning. First of all, homeopathy claims to be an alternative to big pharma, big pharmacies, right? And yet it is big pharma. It's a $15 billion industry. As for the notion of multiple dilutions to a point that little or no presence of the healing element is present in the solution, sort of like dropping an aspirin into the Atlantic Ocean, then drinking a glass from that ocean in order to cure a headache, or the ritualistic vigorous shaking and concussing, which supposedly energizes the mixture, or the notion of water memory, where H2O has been imprinted, if you will, with a recollection, an impression of the original ingredient, though no element of that original remedy remains in the water. This is not about chemistry or medicines, it seems, but rather supposed spiritual energies. And perhaps we could call it magic. Many believe it works. Even some skeptics believe it works, but they have no idea why. Last week, we discussed the fact that it may work due to occult influences in some cases. But there are other answers, too, that we will discuss this evening, including the placebo effect, or simply healing coming through more natural living, better living, healthier living, or just giving the body time to heal. I now turn to Pam Acker and ask for her valuable input on this topic. But as always, because we have Pam on and she has that book out, right? Vaccinations, a Catholic perspective. I would like to get first an update on COVID vaccines. So Pam, tell us, what's the most recent update on COVID vaccines? Sure. So um, I actually was, so I, I follow LifeSite News now uh, quite a bit because of my association with them. Um, and so I uh, happened to, to click through on one of their articles last night on um, uh, the, the reports in particularly in the United Kingdom um, of effects on the reproductive system. So I've been asked several times in several different interviews that I've done 
about, you know, does the vaccine cause miscarriage? Does it cause stillbirth? Does it cause, um, ultimately, does it cause reproductive damage? And of course, you know, the, there have been no studies on reproductive toxicology done with animals, which is normally what you would do to answer those questions and, and see, you know, does it cause problems uh, with animal reproduction? If it does, then you would conclude that it potentially could cause problems with human reproduction. Um, instead, we're doing that experiment on the population of the world. So um, this article uh, was published two days ago, talks about uh, a collection of um, 2,233 reports of reproductive and breast disorders. And these are after the receipt of the AstraZeneca and the Pfizer vaccine. So the AstraZeneca vaccine is much worse in this regard. It's about twice as many uh, reactions from that vaccine. And most of them, so about 255 of the roughly 1400 cases um, involve uh, abnormal bleeding and uh, about 182 involve um, absent or delayed menstruation. So we're seeing a lot of, of cases of um, excessively heavy menstrual bleeding of, uh, or, or just cessation of it altogether. And there's a number of cases, about 20 cases um, of women experiencing postmenopausal hemorrhaging. So they've, they've gone through menopause and um, now they're experiencing their cycle again. And about 12 cases of premature artificial menopause. And this is actually something that was earlier associated with the HPV vaccine. Um, you have premature ovarian insufficiency where a, a young woman, um, you know, because HPV is given to women it, 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 all the way to as young as nine and then up to 25. So usually young women in their teens would experience um, symptoms effectively of, of menopause. And they would uh, consequently lose fertility for life um, after after this kind of vaccination. So there's some research on that that, that I did document in the book that I wrote. Um, so this is not, unfortunately, the first time this has happened with the vaccination. But this is a, really remarkable because AstraZeneca wasn't approved that long ago. Um, you know, and I'm not I'm not the article doesn't give the exact number of cases or, or vaccinations in the in the United Kingdom, but it's certainly probably less than in the U.S just because of the difference in population. Um, but it, the 1,400 reactions involving the reproductive system is not good in a couple of months of vaccination. And then there's another 768 reports of um, uh, reproductive disorders in women from Pfizer's uh, coronavirus vac vaccine, as well as 42 miscarriages. And in the U.S., as of a couple weeks ago, there were 110 reports of miscarriages after COVID vaccination. So this is, this is something that's showing up in the VAERS data. And we know um, because the VAERS data, which is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System here in the U.S., um, it, you know, at most we're getting probably 10% of the reactions actually reported. So, so we're looking at, you know, somewhere between 110 to, uh, you know, 1100 potentially miscarriages actually associated with this vaccine so far. So um, it does appear that there's distinct um, issues with reproductive toxicology. And then I had heard something, it's kind of being uh, noised about the internet that possibly if, if a person has been vaccinated, that they could somehow shed the spike protein and that could expose non-vaccinated people to the same risks 
Um, that claim is highly speculative. And at this point, I haven't seen any evidence that would actually support that claim. Um, the, the, the only, um, the only stuff I've actually seen on it has mostly been assertions and basically saying, well, since we can find, if you're infected, since we can find the spike protein in your, in your mucous membranes, we can test in your saliva, um, things like that, then, then it would make sense that we could find the vaccine-induced spike protein in, in your, your mucous membranes. And if we could, then you could possibly be shedding the spike protein. And that's, that's a lot of um, hypothetical. <laughs> that's an awful lot of hypothetical to start sort of running around and being panicked about that. So um, I just did want to clear that up in case there's anybody that kind of had heard uh, that um, claim. I believe that Dr. Larry Polevsky was, was the one making that claim. Um, there may have been some other doctors as well, but so far that's, that's fairly speculative. Um, so you don't necessarily need to worry about being in the presence of a vaccinated person causing uh, uh, damage to you. And when vaccines can shed, this is a phenomenon that happens, but generally it's live virus vaccines. So um, you don't really need to be worried about spike protein shedding because even if you are exposed to a minuscule amount of spike protein, that can't replicate in your body. Um, it's, it's when you're exposed to a live vaccine virus like the chicken pox vaccine virus or the measles vaccine virus that, that you could potentially contract the disease itself. So I just wanted to make sure that, that that was understood a little bit more clearly. Sure. If you could, before we go on, sure. if it were like um, a multiple, I mean, like to say how much more, um, um, not, not dangerous, perhaps is the wrong word, but compared to other vaccines, we, you, you talked about last time, sure, far more sort of problematic vaccines. So is there a multiple that you can give? Is it like, like two times, um, times? I didn't, I didn't do that math this time, but there was a, there was a, um, okay. So, um, between 2006 and 2014, so I don't know why there's there's not data between 2014 and 2020, but um, the the VAERS uh, data cited 48 cases of ovarian damage um, associated with autoimmune reactions in HPV vaccine recipients. And between 2006 and 2018, it cataloged um, 256 cases of abortion, 172 cases of, of loss of menstruation, and 172 cases of irregular menstruation. Um, so those are numbers over the course of about 12 years that are comparing to numbers um, of, uh, you know, over the course of a couple of months because because the, the numbers that we have for COVID vaccines right now are, are, are even higher than that when you put the the um, AstraZeneca and the Pfizer vaccines together. So the, the AstraZeneca vaccine is probably equivalent to that and the Pfizer is about half that. So you have about at least um, one and a half times as much damage in the past couple months as you've had in 12 years. Wow. So yeah, that's <laughs> significantly more dangerous. Significantly more problematic, exactly. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. So, okay. So last time you talked about um, uh, Samuel Hahnemann and the founder of homeopathy. Right. And perhaps some of his sort of background is maybe being a contributing factor to why we should be maybe a bit more cautious about this particular means of, rem of healing. So maybe you could... Uh, talk about uh, sort of the actual science 
regarding homo homeopathy or, or lack of science that is present in this. Sure. Case. Sure. Uh, yeah. The guidelines that I, I, I was given for investigating uh, alternative therapies is basically like you look into the origin and then you look into how it works, you know, and if the, if the origin is a cult, that's a problem. If you can't figure out how it works, that's also a problem. If both go together, it's, it's a double problem. And so we're looking at that double problem, unfortunately with homeopathy. So um, just to kind of quickly recap the, the, the nature of homeopathy before we just kind of dive into the, some of the science um, we talked last time about the medicines being verified by provings. So this is when people would, would take the medications and see, you know, what kind of symptoms they developed. And it resulted in these kind of ridiculously long catalogs of symptoms for any given um, remedy. And it, it also led to, to what I would call an over-reliance on mental symptoms. So things like how, how, how you're feeling, whether, whether you're anxious or whether you're uh, disgruntled or, or whether you're feeling kind of loss or grief or something like that. And it also led to, to people treating things like loss and grief um, through homeopathic remedies, which, which is, um, I think, inappropriate. <laughs> grief is not a uh, a physiological thing that you, you, you need to cure. Um, you also have the principle in homeopathy of, of like curing like. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute because um, there's been some, some things that people compare homeopathy to that I, I want to kind of take a look at. And um, uh, one of them actually is vaccination, interestingly. So uh, it's, it's, it's curious because most people who advocate um, uh, homeopathy are very opposed to vaccination, but then some people justify it uh, by saying it's very much like vaccination because you're, you're exposing, you know, yourself to a disease in order to protect yourself from a disease kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing you talked a little bit about, the smaller doses being better. So the, the more dilute it is, the, the better it's thought to work. And we talked last time about kind of exceeding Avogadro's limit to the point where there's, there's no molecules uh, left in these, these substances. And the, you can think of um, a 30 a 30 C dilution, which is kind of a standard homeopathic um, uh, formulation, as you know, if you had a sphere of water the size of roughly the distance from the sun to the earth. Um, which is a bigger distance than any of us can really quantify. So sphere of water with that diameter, you would, and you put one molecule of the substance into that sphere of water, you would have a 30.89 C dilution. So we're talking extremely, 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 extremely dilute to the point that, that really truly there are no molecules left. Um, although as we'll see, as we go through this, some homeopaths try to argue that there are molecules left um, whilst arguing that there aren't molecules left. So so it's an interesting uh at least the memory of those moments right the time that we spent well no some of them do actually argue that 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 molecules are left um it's really quite interesting i uh that i won't give it away too much but it, there was this experiment done on um metal metal ions that suggested that you can't dilute them past a certain uh, a certain point at that point everything just sort of I, they, they use the word levitate it levitates to the surface and then it remains in, in the suspension. Um, I don't know why they didn't just use the word float. That would have been a more normal, like scientific word. <laughs> um, so uh, the, 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 the other thing we talked about is uh, succession. Um, so you have to, you have to beat 
the the uh, dilution after you make it. And Hahnemann himself basically insisted that that it's not um, just diluting the medicine, but the actual process of, of shaking it and, and mixing it and, um, you know, striking it against leather at a particular number of times that allows the drug to be um, dynamized or potentized. Um, so that's what gives it its actual uh, healing remedies. And, and people in traditional schools of homeopathy would, would agree with him. There's, there's some division in terms of uh, uh, homeopathic schools there's some who try to be a little bit more scientific about it and, and they go into things like the memory of water and, and, and things like that and try to, to put some sort of chemical or physical veneer on it. But um, uh, Hahnemann himself, you know, talked about the, the remedy being dynamized so it could act spiritually upon the vital forces of the body. Um, so he, he wasn't, you know, unclear about what his tenants were. Um, and then finally, homeopathy, which is, I think this is why it appeals to so many people. It, it's, it, they, it, they claim that it seeks to treat the person rather than treating the disease. Um, and so it's very holistic. But uh, as you, you quoted last time from um, the document, Jesus Christ, the bearer of the water of life, um, that, that document actually talks about the word holistic in terms of health. And, and we have to be very careful with this idea of holism because it, it's, it's kind of, um, rooted in or connected to uh, what they they termed the Gaia hypothesis, um, which is actually a form of pantheism that sort of everything is, is kind of interconnected in this giant organism. And so you do have to have an understanding of when you're treating an ailment in the body, you have to treat the whole body. And I have direct experience of this because I've had doctors try to treat my ankle uh, and ignore the rest of me. <laughs> and that's led to some severe skeletal muscular problems. So you do have to treat the person as a whole person. And you can't really expect that the circulatory, if you do something in the circulatory system, it's not going to have effects on other systems. Or, you know, for example, in vaccination, if you do something to the immune system, that's, that's going to dramatically affect your, your entire body, your whole health. And so, you know, it's, it's not wrong to want to, um, seek to treat the whole of the person, um, by any means, but we have to be very careful about, you know, uh, understanding holism and, and what that means in terms of like a whole individual rather than the individual sort of being absorbed into this pantheistic whole. Um, and it's, it's not really, uh, clear sometimes, unfortunately, where medical practitioners fall on, on that. Uh, spectrum. And just before you, you, you begin, sure. you would be a big promoter of a natural sort of pathic sort of treating the human person where the natural remedies which are present in creation that the good Lord gave us, you know, there's plenty of good things out there that have agency that could bring about a cure or remedy. So you're not, you're not like this sort of, I'm only into, you know, artificial big pharma medicine. <laughs> no, of course not. Natural. No, no, no. Um, yeah, no, I, I, uh, I'm a huge advocate of um, vitamin D and vitamin C, you know, which are actually necessary things that your body needs. And, and there's been a lot of work done that's really demonstrated that, um, I, I think it really effectively demonstrated that uh, the, the recommended daily allowance of vitamin C is just way too low to be um, really effective in a human body. And if you look at animals that actually make their own vitamin C, especially when they're sick or they're under stress, they're making massive amounts, like grams per kilogram, you know, and, 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 um, you know, the, the recommended daily allowance is, is something mediocre, like 180 milligrams or something like that. Um, you know, and, and you can take, I have taken, you know, multiple grams of vitamin C without any negative effect. And, um, Dr. Hum Dr. Suzanne Humphrey says a much better, you know, talk on that than, than I could 
possibly give. So I'll, I'll refer people to her, but, um, but yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of natural substances. Even you, you were talking about, there's a, um, I don't know the name of it, but a, a specific, uh, plant that, um, you know, acts as a natural remedy to poison ivy, you know, they often grow kind of in the same place. And, um, there's, you know, uh, elderberry, um, you know, extracts are supposed to boost your immune system. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things that could just sort of rattle off that, that, you know, I make use of on a regular occasion, even honey for allergies. Although people argue about whether that's, you know, legit or not. Um, and I'm not in any way, shape or form arguing that, you know, uh, antibiotics and, uh, vaccinations are the, the, the saviors of mankind, <laughs> um, as, as we know. So, um, and definitely even we talked a little bit about allopathy, you know, in the last, the last, uh, installment of this. And I, I mentioned fever. So a homeo the homeopath would want to, you know, do something that would sort of correspond with the fever and the allopath would want to, to suppress the fever. You know, I'm not even a fan of suppressing fevers. You know, I will take, I will take ibuprofen if I'm, you know, in a lot of pain with my ankle and everything, but, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that fever suppression is a good idea. I think that's, that's a natural, you know, bodily mechanism that's designed to help clear, um, uh, you know, bad, bad stuff out of your body to clear pathogens out of your body. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not, uh, sitting here explaining my objections to homeopathy because I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm a paid arm of Pfizer or something like that. Sure. sure. Yeah. So homeopathy now. So tell us, uh, some of the things that you've read about in terms of like the placebo effect and things like that. Sure, sure, sure. Um, sorry, that's my quail. Um, <clears throat> is my, my animals keep uh, interrupting our, our conversations here, Father. Um, okay, so uh, it, the, the placebo effect is, is really very interesting, but um, some of these, these explanations about homeopathy is supposed to work if it's not the placebo effect are also quite interesting. Um, so uh, I can start with either one. Do you have a preference, Father? Do you want me to start at the placebo effect? Or? You start whatever is best order-wise for you. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, I think I'll start with the things that homeopathy is like, um, because that that uh, is is often the arguments that I'll encounter personally, or, or or people will make kind of in in some of the literature that I've been reading. So so sometimes people will argue that homeo homeopathy works. It's it's just like anti venom. So you know you're giving a little bit of the the venom of the of the snake to cure a snake bite, um, but that's actually not how anti venom works. Anti venom is is actually when the venom is given to an animal, generally speaking, and that animal then produces anti bodies to the venom so that so it is actually something that's anti the venom and that antibody is then injected into a human to to protect them from a snake bite so technically you have the venom at the beginning of the chain protecting from the venom at the end of the chain but you have this zero conversion that happens in the middle where an animal body actually takes um, I mean, it doesn't even take the venom and convert it into something. It actually responds to the venom, produces a molecule um, that binds to the venom, neutralizes the venom, and, and can actually, you know, keep you as a human being from dying if you're bitten by that snake. So anti-venom is really not like homeopathy at all, because you're not using um, the snake venom to, to cure the snake venom. 
are still using antibodies to cure the snake venom. Um, some, sometimes people have said that homeopathy is like vaccination because you're taking a very uh, weakened form of, of a disease or a virus that, that's causing disease and you're, in, you're injecting that in the body and then your body is, is now going to be able to fight that disease um, correctly. But there's a couple of reasons why that's, that's not really a very good analogy. And one of which is there's actual... Um, molecules in the vaccine. Um, there's in the COVID vaccines, there's actual mRNA um, or, or DNA with the, the viral vector vaccines um, or in you know regular vaccines, there's actual molecules from the pathogen. So you, you're actually injecting something into the body that has like a, le a legitimate um, you know f uh, pharmacological response that's gonna happen. And then that response is, is um, you know, primarily in your, in your immune system, which is not you know, what homeopathy necessarily claims to affect, you know, some homeopathic remedies are supposed to affect other systems. So it's not a super great analogy. Um, another one I hear a lot is, is hormones. Well, hormones are super dilute. And um, specifically somebody claimed, you know, well, if you take one milligram of acetylcholine and you dissolve that in uh, 500,000 gallons of water, um, that, that, uh, and you take a little bit of that, you can lower a cat's blood pressure. Um, and that I, I worked it out because, you know, water has a density of one gram per milliliter. So, uh, you know, then 50,000 gallons of water is approximately, um, uh, 2 billion milliliters. It's about, it's about, you know, 1.87 billion, but, you know, close, we'll, we'll just say 2 billion. Round it up. Yeah, yeah. Round it up. <laughs> Well, but it's easier than saying 1.87 repeatedly. Um, so, so that's a one in two billion dilution. Now, I I, I did the quick math. Now, it's really funny. So now, anytime I, I have students complain in my science classes about doing unit conversions and say, "When am I going to use this in real life?" I'm going to say, "When you're talking to your pastor about homeopathy," <laughs> <laughs> because I did. I, I I used for real used uh, unit conversions in real life, and I, I calculated, you know, based on the the um, density or the the. Uh, grams per mole of acetylcholine, uh, how many molecules would be in a drop of acetylcholine? And then if I diluted that one to 2 billion, how many molecules would be in one drop of blood? And um, in, in one drop of blood at, at a one to 2 billion uh, dilution, there, there'd be approximately, you know, a hundred um, million molecules of acetylcholine. So that's very different from zero molecules. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's it's a very it's a very dilute solution, but there's still a lot of molecules, and uh, you know, it, it, everything that that I know about signaling biology and having studied this in grad school and all that, um, you know, that that the response to hormones works on on a biochemical gradient. So, like, the more that I have, the more response I'm going to get. So it'll depend on you know where things are at in the body and how, because you you'll you'll have uh, higher concentrations in particular areas when you have um, sort of localized signaling. When you have hormone signaling, it'll be a little bit more uh, distributed evenly throughout your circulatory system. But still, the 100 million molecules in a drop of blood. There's a lot of molecules um, that that's going to drive uh, uh, biological effects in a very different way than something that has has no molecules of the original substance. So it's really not a good analogy at all. And allergies, again, not a good analogy for the same reason. It, you have a you have a really violent response to a really small amount of something, but again, it's it's a small amount of something, and something is very different from nothing. You know, I I, I don't remember. Um, if it was in uh, Foundations Restored or, or, or your father recently mentioned the ridiculousness of, of Stephen Hawking saying, you know, uh, that, that 
nothing is so close to something that at some point something just jumped out of nothing. It's like, you can't really say that, like nothing and something are diametrically opposed. Um, so uh, even a very little amount of something is very, very different than, than nothing. And then the last kind of thing that people will say, well, you know, um, why does it matter if we know how homeopathy works? Because we don't know how anesthesia works, but we use anesthesia all the time. You know, I, I, I happily accepted anesthesia when they took my wisdom teeth out. I did not want to be awake for that. Um, uh, but, you know, anesthesia works, um, even if we don't know exactly how it works in the body or why, why that we can put you to sleep and wake you up. We know how to put you to sleep and we know how to wake you up. And if, you know, we really just basically need to know a little bit about you. We need to know, you know, uh, your, your weight and your, you know, maybe your age and some underlying complications. We don't need to know as, you know, sometimes it seems like in homeopathy, we don't need to know your Zodiac sign or, you know, whether you're more likely to get angry or sad if somebody, uh, you know, insults you or it, 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 there's some of these things are just so, so strange. When you look in the, in the materia medica at all the different symptoms that, you know, are supposed to go along with these particular remedies. Um, you know, it, we just need to know some very basic things about you that are, that are standardizable to any individual. And then we, we know what dose of anesthesia to give you to put you to sleep and to wake you up. And people do this very effectively all day long. Um, uh, you know, I actually worked for a nurse anesthetist, you know, he put people to sleep all day, every day, you know, never lost a patient because it works the same way all the time. So again, very unlike homeopathy. Like last week, we talked about people having constitutional remedies, and we'll talk a little bit more this week about things working sometimes and sometimes not. Okay. Um, I'm going to take a drink. <clears throat> I was going to say the, uh, we were talking about it earlier this afternoon, um, the individual sort of person, you know, and how important it is to homeopathy. And so I remember right. one patient asking the homeopathic practitioner, I, I need a cure for an ear infection. And, and the homeopathic practitioner said, which ear, right or left? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I'm considering all sort of potential aspects of the whole person there. Yeah, yeah, I, I had read something about that. In a, you know, I think the justification had something to do with like, well, your heart is shifted to slightly one side, so it creates this kind of like micro environment. And I mean, you know, and back to back to natural remedies. You know, um, you know, I'm not sure for for ear infections, but definitely for for clogged ears. Um, you know, hydrogen peroxide is very helpful with that, and. Uh, uh, you know, garlic oil, people have used that for a really long time for ear infections. It works in both ears. <laughs> um, and there's actual garlic in the garlic oil, you know, so uh, oddly enough. Um, yeah. So, garlic, <laughs> so what's that? The memory of garlic in the oil or actual No, garlic? actual garlic. <laughs> <laughs> actual molecules. I mean, don't put like chunks of garlic in your ear. That's probably a bad idea. <laughs> but uh, things that are soluble in the oil that, that you extract out of the garlic. Um Right. This is, this is going to turn into the, the messy, don't, don't try these, you know, natural remedies at home. <laughs> it's <Right. show. laughs> the placebo effect. <clears throat> okay. That... Yes. You're very, very interested in the placebo effect. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll go through that. Um, right. So, so one of the things that people talk about with, with, uh, you know, uh, homeopathy is, well, well, it works, you know, and, and we talked about, well, how does it work? And there's, there's multiple different mechanisms whereby it works and, and, or could work. And one of them is the placebo effect. And so this is a really uh, truly interesting phenomenon. And, um, you know, it, it would be kind of the height 
of uh, a waste of taxpayer dollars to, to give people different kinds of placebos and, and compare the results to each other to see, you know, if, if, if uh, the placebo effect varies. But um, there's a researcher who's actually taken, he pooled data from all kinds of different trials that had placebos. So, um, you know, you, you'll give somebody an actual drug and compare it to something that isn't an actual drug to, to see if the actual drug is working or not. And, and, and homeopathy has actually been tested this way as well. And I'll, I'll talk about those trials in just a second. Um, but the, the placebo for those who aren't familiar is, is, is like, it's like a placeholder. So, um, you know, they'll give you a, a little red pill and you don't know whether that little red pill is, um, uh, you know, actual medicine or it's just sugar or something like that. You know, in, in the case of an injection, the, the placebo would be saline rather than sugar. So, um, uh, but generally something that's considered to be an inert substance. So, so it's kind of the gold standard for placebos in, in vaccine development is, is saline solution. So we'd inject you with salt water rather than injecting you with active components of the vaccine. And that's actually, you know, to, to their credit, that's actually what Pfizer did. Um, they, they used a true saline placebo in their experiments. Um, you know, they removed their control group by vaccinating them several months later, <laughs> which is not good science either. Um, but they did have an actual placebo. So you would think that this, this salt water would have no effect. Um, but curiously enough, you know, it, 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 it does. Some people report side effects, you know, that, that, that vaguely resembles the same side effects that you get in the vaccine. And that's why, you know, if you see something that says it's no different from placebo, um, then, then, you know, whatever random, you know, effects that you observe with the placebo group, you also observe with the, the group that's actually receiving the medication. So this, this gentleman pooled all this data from all these different placebo trials, and he, he actually discovered some really odd things, you know, one of which is that if you get four placebo pills, they work better than two placebo pills. <laughs> so people had a higher rate of, of having like an actual positive resolution to their, their problem if they were given four pills versus two pills. Um, they also have a, a higher rate and particularly um, a lot of this stuff was done in looking at, at pain medications. So like, did you have actual pain reduction? And pain of course is pretty subjective. So, um, you know, you can experience pain, but not really notice that you're experiencing pain. Um, I, 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 I get this a lot because, you know, I, I'm still, my ankle still bothers me pretty much every day. Um, but if I'm doing something that's very like absorbing or distracting, like preparing for a talk on homeopathy, I don't really notice that my ankle's hurting all day. But if I'm just sort of sitting around, you know, with nothing really to do, I'm like, oh, hey, my ankle's hurting right now, you know, um, I can get very myopic about it. So pain can be subjective. You can kind of be distracted from your pain, but you can also apparently, um, your pain can be lessened by, you know, the expectation that it's going to be lessened. So one of the curious things about the placebo effect is, um, you know, probably everybody listening has heard of Valium and, you know, it's, it's a very powerful uh, uh, painkiller, but there was a study that showed that it doesn't actually work unless you tell the person you're administering it. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, so they, they administered it to people um, while telling them and without telling them. And the people that they told that they were getting Valium, they, they reported that their pain had lessened. And the people that weren't told that they were getting Valium did not report any lessening of their pain. Um, so uh, there's, there's this really interesting phenomenon of our expectations somehow influencing our physiology. And they've observed this even too with, um, in terms of placebo diagnoses. So people will come in with a, 
with the health complaint, not really know what is wrong. They'll be given a sham diagnosis. You know, you, you have this, you can expect it to clear up in a couple of weeks. And, you know, shockingly, in that group of people, more often the disease clears up in a couple of weeks than people who are not told that, who are told instead, you know, we don't really know what's wrong with you. Um, come back in two weeks, you know. Um, so it, it, there's this really, um, you know, pretty well documented um, effect of, of, of even just, you know, words <laughs> on, mm-hmm. on people. And um, certainly with homeopathic diagnosis, if you're seeing an actual homeopath, you end up with, uh, you know, a lot of conversation and there can be some sort of therapeutic aspects to that. We're all familiar with, you know, bedside manner and doctors. And, and it is actually a legit phenomenon that if the doctor has a better bedside manner, his patients tend to get better faster. Um, why? It's probably not the the memory of the vibrations of the words that the air is holding onto or something like that. <laughs> it's, it's probably, you know, sort of uh, a lot more reasonably explicable phenomenon. You know, one very simple thing that, that's been suggested is, you know, when you uh, have a positive experience, your, your brain releases different neurotransmitters than when you're not having a positive experience. And so um, if you're releasing those, those positive neurotransmitters, um, they do actually lessen your experience of pain. So, so there's been some, some documentation of a physiological you know, sort of cause here that's it's pretty plausible. Um, but the most remarkable placebo effect story I ran across was uh, um, some cleaning ladies were divided into two groups and, and half of them were told that uh, cleaning, uh, the cleaning that you're doing is, is very good exercise. It meets the, the you know, FDA recommendations for, for how much exercise you should be getting. And, and, you know, you really should expect to see some improvements in health. And uh, shockingly, as they, they follow these two groups of women, the women who'd been told how good, how good this, you know, normal activity that they were already doing was for them. And the women who were still doing their normal activity, but had not been told this, um, the women who'd been told that the exercise was good for them, uh, without doing any more exercise, actually lost weight, and their their waist to hip ratio decreased, and their body mass index inc- or decreased. Um, so, uh, d- d- <laughs> placebo effect does some really, really, really weird things. And so, I think sometimes when we're seeing uh, uh, effects from homeopathic remedies, it's it's very possible we're seeing placebo effect because often homeopathic remedies are given, like I said last time, for things that that resolve pretty well on their own or are pain related. I think some of the most popular homeopathic remedies are, are things like Arnica for pain um, or Belladonna for pain. Sorry about the bird again. <laughs> That's okay. And by you, the you way, just to let people thank know. Thank one of the other prisoners for the bird. <laughs> so remember like last week, Pam uh, was able to discuss uh, Dr. Samuel uh, is Hahnemann, who the sort of founder of homeopathy and the occult background of, in, in some cases of his Freemasonry and so forth. Because uh, what we're trying to show here is that homeopathy, in, in a sense, works. Okay. So, but if there's really no medis- medical explanation for it, why is it? And so last week we talked about the occult being perhaps uh, uh, an, an option to think about. But now we're thinking about placebo effect because, you know, it works in some cases and, and, and it works so well. I was talking to Pam earlier uh, this afternoon and in France, France is a major first world country. 40% of physicians are also equipped and sort of trained in homeopathic uh, sort of tr- treatments, 40%. So this is a this is very present as a 
practice, especially in Europe. And I guess it's probably growing over here in the United States as well, I would imagine. So, because, you know, it works. So, continue on there with the placebo effect or other ways that perhaps we can answer why sure. homeopathic remedies sort of work, quote unquote. Right. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm talking a little bit more about the placebo effect because there's been a, a lot of clinical trials that have been done on uh, homeopathic remedies, comparing them to placebos. And, um, you know, I actually was uh, forwarded an article from uh, Mercola.com uh, that I, I looked into uh, all the footnotes of, and uh, it was unfortunately a, a pretty uh, ignorant is probably the best word article. Um, in, in, in this person just kind of took uh, claims and, and spun them to be as positive for homeopathy as absolutely possible. And unfortunately, I found that uh, several times now with, with Merkel. I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed in the quality of the stuff that they publish. You really have to have a very discerning um, uh, eye to it and, and actually look at the original research papers that are that are there. But they cited a paper, um, and, and this article was from 2018, so not that long ago, but they, they cited a, a 2014 report. And it, it was basically hailed in this article on Merkel.com as confirming that there was a difference between homeopathic treatment and a placebo. And it was one of these meta-analyses. And a meta-analysis is when you take um, all kinds of different studies and you sort of pool all the results together. And it, it gives you um, more statistical power to detect real differences because you have a greater in value. And um, the, the in value is just the number of participants in the study. So if you have 10 studies that each have 40 patients and you put them all together, now you have 400 patients and you can look at that study kind of in, in, in or those studies in the aggregate and see if there's any difference. But there's some important things that, that kind of have to be done when you're doing a meta-analysis and, and you can't be comparing apples to oranges um, and you also can't be comparing apples to nothing. Because <laughs> um, again, nothing is, is really nothing. Um, but in, in this particular study from 2014, um, they looked at 32 eligible um, randomized controlled trials and, and randomization in a trial is um, it's very important because if you, if you don't properly randomize your trial, um, you are, you're likely to, and again, they've, they've done studies on this because, you know, why not? We'll just do study on everything. Um, the trials with bad randomization methods exaggerate their benefits by approximately 41%. Um, that would end up giving you a statistically significant benefit where none actually existed. And trials that don't list the randomization methods on average exaggerate their positive results by about 30%. Um, and this is when compared against, you know, trials that, that uh, I think are repeated um, uh, or, or just actual data, you know, once the, once the drug gets into the, the real life, into the real market as, as the, all the Pfizer or the uh, COVID vaccines are now. Um, so it's, it's not really, uh, um, you know, we think about randomizing, you know, your first thought might be like, well, you know, the first person that comes in, I'll put them in the control group so they get the placebo. And the second person that comes in, I'll put them in the experimental group and then control group, experimental group, control group, experimental group. And that's random, right? Well, that's actually not a very good way to randomize things because, you know, as people are signing up for a study, you know, say I'm the researcher sitting here and the next person is going to go into the experimental group, but I'm pro homeopathy. And this person comes in and is clearly like hardcore, like I am not convinced. I am, you know, I'm just signing up for this study for the, the reimbursement that you guys are going to give me. And, you know, I really don't think this is going to work. I might decide actually, you know, this person's not qualified for this study for like X, Y, or Z reason. You know, I might actually look harder for a reason to disqualify them than I would if they were going to go into the control group and then just be like, okay, you know, you can, you can jump into the control groups. So you can get like 
um, unconscious researcher bias if you're not randomizing your trials correctly. And if you have that bias, then you, you end up with exaggerated placebo effects. And that's really what you're observing. So this 2014 study that looked at these, these 32 eligible random controlled trials, um, that studied 24 different medical conditions in total, um, they, they classed 12 trials as having an uncertain risk of bias. So they weren't sure like what level of the risk of bias was probably because they didn't report their, their methods, which would indicate that, you know, on average, they'd be 30% too, uh, too positive about the results. Um, three of these 32 studies displayed relatively minor uncertainty and were designated reliable evidence, and 20 trials were classed high risk of bias. And then they took 22 of the trials that had extractable data, and they subjected them to meta-analysis. And as a person who has sat in research discussions with other people who have argued vociferously about methods and like, I don't think that your interpretation of your data is correct because X, Y, Z reason. And they actually usually have a pretty compelling, you know, scientists don't nitpick at each other about like nothing, you know, especially if they're in the same field. Um, the fact that they took 22 trials when only three of them were designated as having reliable evidence tells me that this study is absolute bunk. It's ridiculous because at most, at, at, at the best possible thing they could have done is that 15 of those 22 trials had either um, reliable evidence or uncertain evidence. And then the rest of them had high risk of bias evidence. And that's only if all three of the, the good trials had extractable data and all 12 of the uncertain trials had extractable data, which we don't even know. So this is a horrendously bad study. And even though the article in Merkel has said that it confirmed that there's a difference between homeopathic treatment and a placebo, the report itself said this, and I quote, medicines prescribed in individualized homeopathy may have small specific treatment effects. Findings are consistent with subgroup data available in a previous global systematic review. The low or unclear overall quality of the evidence prompts caution in interpreting the findings. New high-quality randomized controlled trial research is necessary to enable more decisive interpretation. The article said our data is too bad for us to really, like, say, except that it sort of looks positive. <laughs> like, right. Right, right. That, and, you know, if that's the best that people can come up with, that's really sad. Um, I'm sorry. And clinical trials can be manipulated. And, and Ben Goldacre wrote like an entire book called Bad Pharma, which talks about this in great detail, which I highly recommend as a, a very entertaining read. Um, and, and just very enlightening if you've like never looked into clinical research before. But, but this is like ridiculous. Um, even, even for, you know, potentially bad clinical research, because of course no clinical research is going to be perfect, but there are things you can do to make it better. And, and this is just silly. Um, so, you know, going back a little further to 1996, um, there was a report that was done by the homeopathic medicine research group, which included some homeopathic physicians, um, and researchers as well as experts in clinical research. And they examined 184 papers. So it's a much larger sample size. They concluded that only 17 of these were designed and reported well enough to have any merit worth examining, and that the number of participants in these 17 trials was too small to draw any conclusion about the effectiveness of homeopathic treatment for any specific condition. Um, so they were at least honest about the fact that, you know, you can't really measure results in, for one condition against another condition and, and say, well, homeopathy works, you know, kind of across the board based on, you know, a couple of potential uh, things in, for specific conditions. And, you know, 
when you're when you're looking at at you know trials, obviously the larger the sample size, the greater the cost. So there's a limit to how how robust you can make your sample that way. But there's no cost to to randomizing properly, and there's no cost to blinding properly. And this is another big problem with clinical trials and alternative medicine in general, but also homeopathy in particular, is that the the double blind studies are the best where the the participant doesn't know what they're receiving. So you can't have that power of suggestion of like, like if you know that you're receiving the actual medicine or you know that you're receiving the actual placebo, then, you know, you, you, there, there's a subcon subconscious, you know, bias towards noticing or not noticing certain things that, that may or may not be attached to the, the trip, the, um, the medicine. So, you know, as the individual receiving it, you have to not know which one you're receiving. But as the researcher administering it, you also have to not know which one you're administering. And this was a problem in the Pfizer vaccine trial um, for, for COVID, that the researchers were not blind. And it's, it was up to the researcher to decide whether or not to COVID test somebody with symptoms. And so there was Dr. Um, Peter Doshi at the British Medical Journal talked about this. There was... Um, very, very likely a, a researcher bias of like, if somebody presented with COVID symptoms, but they had been vaccinated to simply assume that it was a vaccine reaction and not actually test them for COVID. And um, as I think you probably know, Father, there's a, there was a recent uh, article published about a convent of nuns where um, they were all, they had been completely sheltered from the whole world for all of you know, Corona mania. And they were then, um, they were then uh, vaccinated. And within two days, 80% of them tested positive for the coronavirus. So if we had tested the people who were vaccinated in the first seven days, which they didn't do, you know, who showed up with, with coronavirus-like symptoms, we might've seen that actually a lot of people who are vaccinated actually immediately get infected with coronavirus. We might not have seen that, but we might've seen that, but we didn't test, so we don't know. And so that's one of the problems with not properly blinding your studies. And, um, you know, uh, if studies aren't properly blinded, especially in alternative health, what you tend to see is if they are blinded, there's no significant benefit. If they're not blinded or, or unblinded, um, then you'll see a massive significant benefit for whatever alternative health therapy is being, is being tested. So um, this is, this is a, a huge problem when looking at uh, studies done that purportedly show the benefits of homeopathy, you really have to look into the materials and methods. How did they randomize their participants? Did they, did they double blind? You know, how many people are they testing? Exactly what are they testing? You know, how, how are they tabulating their data? How many people did they have in their study? Um, you know, my, my research methods kids could run you through all of this probably. Um, you know, all of these different things that you have to pay attention to in, in order to actually trust the results of a study. So you can't just like point to one publication, even one, you know, meta-analysis of publications and say, look, homeopathy works. You have to look behind the curtain. And that's what I've spent the last couple of weeks doing. And I've read some really wonky stuff about water memory. <laughs> you know what? I want to talk about water memory. So, um, <laughs> so again, the placebo effect you mentioned a little bit, and obviously we talked about um, issues regarding just time. I mean, instead of bloodletting, let's say, you know, uh, centuries past, just let the body heal itself. And it's not necessarily attributable to homeopathic remedies, but just time, the body healing itself. Or yeah. we talked about, too, the notion that um, 
you have uh, the expectation, at least in the past, that a person taking homeopathic remedies would clean up their life a bit. They would get more fresh air. They would, you may cut out coffee and you know, tea and, and maybe alcohol, and they would try to get better exercise. And so there's lots of potential reasons why a person might have been healed besides the homeopathic remedy, especially when there's little or no presence of any molecules of the original ingredients in. So this brings us to water memory. Right. What is right. this water memory thing? Well, it's, it's interesting because that, that same Merkel article I referenced it in, in the same article, it argued both that, you know, you don't need to, in fact, it's silly to, to talk about chemically examining homeopathic remedies because it's, it's not about the chemicals. And then later in the article, it's arguing, oh, actually, like there are still molecules left in these homeopathic dilutions. So it's just arguing like both sides of the coin at the same time, which is just, just like, uh, again, such bad science, but um, the, the, you know, if there truly are no molecules left, you know, then you have to posit another mechanism for how, how is there somehow information being retained in, in this remedy. And so water memory is kind of one of the, one of the ones I've seen more often. And, and water is an extremely, extremely unique, um, uh, molecule. Uh, um, you know, what life would not exist without the unique properties of water. So for example, water, um, will float when it freezes rather than sinking most things are, are more dense as solids than liquids. So if water did that, the oceans would freeze from the bottom up and it would only ever kind of melt on the top and you simply wouldn't be able to have life in a body of water. Um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of, a, a, you know, the high heat of vaporization, a, a high specific heat um, that, that uh, has to do with, with um, you know, high heat of vaporization is how, you know, sweating can cool you down. So the water evaporating off of you uh, requires a lot of heat that, that um, takes a lot of heat out of your body so that you don't overheat. Um, you know, the, the high specific heat of water keeps coastal areas, you know, cooler uh, in the summer and warmer in the winter because, you know, the, the water acts as like heat sink. This is why, you know, when you want to jump in the water, as soon as it seems like the first day of spring, it's a really bad idea because the air has warmed up, but the water has not. Right. <laughs> um, so water does have some very unique properties. And when you put it under extreme um, situations like extreme pressures or extreme temperatures, it can do some really, really strange behaving things. And I actually spent, um, as part of my research, I spent uh, a, a good long, uh, close to an hour on the phone with my brother, who is a, a, a coastal engineer, and he spent a number of years studying fluid dynamics in graduate school. So he knows a lot about water and how water works and how water behaves under particular conditions. And, um, you know, so it's, it's not just my own, you know, expertise in immunology and cell biology I'm applying here. I'm also sort of importing <laughs> the familial science gene and uh, talking about fluid dynamics too. So, so he and I talked a lot about this and, and then I, I read a lot about this and, and, you know, water does some very interesting things and that kind of opened the door to some of these, these theories, but the theories themselves, if you'll pardon the pun, don't hold water. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's look at it. Look at a couple of them. Um, so one of the one of the main um, guys who who just comes up again and again and again is uh, Jacques Benaviste, and he did an experiment in and it was published in Nature, which is a hugely important journal in in 1988. 
And he, he took some extremely dilute solutions of antibodies and he saw that these extremely dilute solutions of antibodies caused a physiological effect. And, and this generated like the, the same sort of, you know, fever that cold fusion did. Um, it, it was just like, you know, how could this be true? Everybody kind of jumped on the board to try to replicate his results. And um, Nature published his results uh, on, on the condition that these other, you know, labs around the world would try to replicate what he had done. And it turns out that, that none of them were actually able to replicate what he did. And actually, when um, people, uh, the, the head, this was kind of an extraordinary thing, the head editor of Nature, um, along with two other witnesses, you know, one of whom was, a, a, I think, a scientific journalist and the other who was actually a professional magician. I guess they were trying to make sure that nobody was, you know, pulling any uh, magic tricks. Um, they, they had, uh, Benavise reconduct his own experiments in his own laboratory and he couldn't generate the same data. Um, and so his paper was never retracted, but it was seriously discredited. Um, and, and people who claim that it, that it wasn't are, are reading a lot of homeopathy reviews and not a lot of you know, actual science. Um, because I read through a number of the responses to his paper in Nature that were published before his his um, uh, work was even tried to be replicated. And it was interesting to see how uh, sort of effusive and general and vague some of the, the pro-homeopathy responses were and how um, the, the, the regular scientists were primarily asking like legitimate questions about his methods, you know, and, and, and one of them pointed out that the experiment demonstrated um, a really strange periodicity that, that it was probably an artifact of the way that the micro well plates were filled. Because if you're working at such high dilutions, if you have even like the tiniest fraction of like micro spray coming off of your, your equipment as you're filling these wells, which are right next to each other, you would see that, you know, everything, every well in this row or, or next to this particular well that had the higher concentration would, would see a, a, a higher effect. And so there were some really reasonable, very, very reasonable criticisms that were offered um, that were published in Nature um, about a, not even a year after his original paper was published, a few months after his paper was published. Um, so uh, I don't think, I don't, unfortunately, I don't think this experiment really, um, uh, you know, demonstrates anything about, you know, water having a memory in the way that homeopaths would need it to. Um, even though there was a, a lady by the name of Madeline Ennis who tried a slightly different experiment um, and, and got similar results. And she was working with some homeopathic companies. She herself was a, was a, you know, complete skeptic, but she was working with some homeopathic companies and she, um, she used some really dilute solutions of histamine. Um, and her first experiment, um, had a, a positive result. It looked like the, hist the, the actual histamine and the dilute histamine had the same effect, but then she also tried to replicate her results. She was able to replicate them one time, but not replicate them a second time. And at that point it was kind of, they kind of figured out that um, uh, the ambient conditions of, of the laboratory actually influenced the cellular response that they were looking at. And so if you did the experiment in certain ways, you could get the results, but if you did it in other ways, you couldn't get the results. And so the, the outcome they were looking for, which we would call the dependent variable, was, was highly influenced by environment. And her original result, from, from what, I, what I read, I was unfortunately on a, 
only able to find a secondary source on this, not a primary source, but it looked like it lacked what we would call a negative control. So they had a positive control. They, they put actual histamine in with the cells to see what they would do in the presence of actual histamine, but it doesn't look like they put in uh, just plain water that hadn't been homeopathically prepared to see what would happen if there was if there was no water. At least that wasn't reported in the literature that I read. And if they didn't actually do that, that was a badly designed experiment. Um, and that that would have you know potentially made it uh, invalid because you know then if you if you're seeing the the response in both the the cells that are treated with the histamine and the cells that are treated with the homeopathic histamine, the one that's diluted out of existence. Um, and you see both the cells respond the same way. It could just be due to something in the environment um, that you're not taking into account. So and actually, even if you had a negative control, you might still have that problem. Um, so that, that might not have helped. So never mind. <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to, you know, to, to remind people of why we're talking about this notion of water sort of reminiscing, uh, having a certain memory, uh, because if there is, as a part of homeopathic practice, multiple dilutions, as Pam so well said, to the point that the ingredient that you originally put in there, it doesn't, it's no longer there. It, it, it just, it's not present. And so the notion is that somehow some impression or imprinting spiritually, perhaps, of that ingredient has come into the water and therefore has perhaps changed its structure that it sort of carries on that sort of presence in some way, energized presence of that, uh, of that particular ingredient. But of course, as Pam said to me <laughs> today, since oftentimes these particular homeopathic medicines are taken via a pill, like a sugar-like pill, <laughs> that when you spray this solution, which is water for the most part with actually no presence of any real ingredient, the, the water is gonna evaporate. So as Pam rightly said to me this afternoon, she said, well then sugar also must have recollection. <laughs> right, you have to talk about sugar memory, not just water memory if you're gonna pause it, this is how homeopathy works. Um, yeah, because you don't- Sure, sure, sure. Um, so there was a, a, a second uh, fellow, his name was Luc uh, Mon Montaigne, something like that. Um, it's French and I, I, I know I'm butchering it. I wrote down somewhere how to pronounce it, but it's on my kitchen table. Um, but he, he looked at uh, some um, bacterial DNA sequences and he claimed that these can induce electromagnetic waves when they're, they're highly diluted. And there's some kind of, he, he said, so this is his, quoting directly from the abstract of his article. Um, it appears to be a resonance phenomenon, which is triggered by the ambient electromagnetic background of very low frequency waves. The genomic DNA of most pathogenic bacteria contains sequences which are able to generate such signals. This opens the way to the development of highly sensitive detection system for chronic bacterial infections in human and animal diseases. So this was like kind of the, reincarnation of water memory, if you will, after um, Benavis was somewhat discredited. Um, so this was looking at these electromagnetic signals and saying, well, maybe because water, um, water is polar, so it's, it's not charged, but there's a slight charge separation between the ends of the molecules. And so it, it does behave in strange ways, you know, with electricity, it, it conducts electricity, it responds to um, electromagnetic radiation at, 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 you know, certain, um, 
in certain ways. And so, so this was like, well, maybe this is, maybe this is how homeopathy works. So there's a couple of problems with his article. Um, the, the, the biggest two are that he doesn't actually really talk about his materials and methods very clearly. Um, and it's not written like a scientific paper at all. It's just like one long narrative versus actually, you know, uh, giving the background and the, and the methods and all the things that my poor students are going to have to do here in a couple of weeks. Um, but the, the article was received on the 3rd of January in 2009. It was revised on the 5th of January in 2009, and it was accepted on the 6th of January in 2009 by a paper that had, or a, 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 a journal that had just been launched and of which Montaigne was the primary editor. Um, so this is, uh, highly suspect to say the least, because in a, in a regular journal, in terms of peer review, um, usually an article is accepted uh, and then it's revised several months later and then, or, I'm sorry, it's received and then it's revised several months later and then it's accepted several months after that. So you'll see something that's like sort of submitted in March and finally actually published in October. So so this sort of three-day turnaround between when it's received and when it's actually published is ridiculous. And it, it it's definitely... Um, not, not a, a high mark in favor of the credibility of the article. There was also a high level of background noise. And when they, they um, did some other experiments where they, they tried to filter out the background noise, they found that they lost the effects. So some scientists have posited that, that what Montaigne saw was here was actually um, just you know what happens when you're, you're looking so hard for signals that you start seeing signals and noise. Um, and, and this is, you know, a common thing that can happen if you, if you get a little too myopic about your ideas. Um, and he, his results, even if they're true, which I, I'm not sure they are, um, they don't really support homeopathy because in his highest dilutions, there were still molecules of the DNA. He did not go past Avogadro's limit. Um, and, and he observed that there were no effects in low dilutions of his molecules and that there were observable effects at some of the higher dilutions, but the effect vanished at the highest dilutions. So his, his highest dilutions did not have any effect at all. And the effect did not grow progressively stronger as the dilution was progressively higher. So it didn't correspond to the principle that homeopaths say, which is the higher the dilution, the stronger the remedy. Um, so it did not provide any evidence for that. In fact, provided evidence against that. Um, and then the last problem was the effects only lasted up to 48 hours. And for a homeopathic um, remedy, the, the remedies are basically, you know, if, if you look at any kind of website that talks about them, they, they're not supposed to expire. They're supposed to be good forever. So you could, um, in the words of one homeopathic practitioner, you can pass down the remedies that you don't use in your, your kit to your grandchildren and they'll still be effective. Um, well, if this is how they're working, then, then no, actually they won't. <laughs> um, so, uh, and the other big problem with the study was that, that while it claimed that they had, they had detected similar electromagnetic spectrum frequencies in, in numerous other samples, they did not cite or, or publish any of that data. So when you do that in a scientific paper, um, it's highly suspect. You can't just make a claim and not have a reference for it. This was another problem I found with that Merkel article I was reading earlier today, where there's some really like fantastic claims that were made and there was not a single footnote for them. Um, so, you know, how am I supposed to determine whether this is actually accurate or not? Um, so the, there's just some, some huge, huge, huge problems with that study. And then he, he went on and, and published some other things that were, were questionable, but I feel like his, we've already kind of dealt sufficiently with his, his, um, thing, sure. except that also the fact that he's talking about low frequency electromagnetic radiation. And, and one of his critics 
you know, basically pointed out to him, like, look, if you're, if you're talking about these low frequency waves, which means you're going to have a longer wavelength. So uh, if you have high frequency, you have shorter wavelength, there's, there's shorter distance between the waves. If you have um, low frequency, there's a longer wavelength. The likelihood of these long frequency, you know, wavelengths, even hitting the individual molecules of water is, is kind of equivalent to like expecting uh, an aircraft to, to hit a specific ant while it's landing in a terminal, <laughs> you just don't have like the, 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 the space that you have is just not, it, it's not equivalent to the, the size of the molecule that you're dealing with. So it's, it's pretty silly. Um, honestly. Um, and then we're running up a little bit into the clock. Could you, Oh, sure. Have, well, you, you, you were worried this morning. I wouldn't have an hour. <laughs> Could you perhaps, I mean, people might say, well, you're not mentioning the importance of, the vigorous shaking, or that's really what's releasing the succession, right? Succussion, right? Succession, succussion. It's like a con something like that. You concussed succussion. The violent sort of shaking and using of this leather Bible, which you know, leather bound Bible, which is what Hahnemann sort of wanted to bang his sort of. Uh, mixtures with what are they saying there and is it scientifically feasible that violent shaking will somehow spiritualize or energize or dynamize this particular solution right so in the in the um the uh the experiments I just talked about, they, they did, you know, violently shake, uh, the, the, the dilutions in between. And that's, that's, um, I, I think that's thought to be necessary because, um, there's some, there's, there's a gentleman, his, his name is Martin Chaplin. He's looked at micro arrangements that occur in water. And some people call them liquid, excuse me, liquid crystals, but I haven't seen any evidence of water actually forming liquid crystals. Other things do form liquid crystals, um, but but water can form sort of these transitory uh, short-lived arrangements of, of, of water molecules that have some sort of, you know, structure to them. And and he he seems to think, so his name is Martin Chaplin, he seems to think that, um, he's published a lot of things, that, that these micro um, structures, particularly when they form icosahedral clusters of about 280 water molecules, that these, these um, somehow explain the anom anomalous behavior of water under certain conditions. And that somehow, you know, if water can form these structures, then it somehow makes sense that if we're, if we're, if we're successing it, if we're banging it against these things, you know, um, then, then that's giving it the energy it needs to, for those molecules to form those association and somehow, you know, imprint the molecule on them. Um, and, you know, the, the, the explanation for like exactly, I mean, I don't, I don't see any real explanation for like a number of times that this would have to happen, even though I'm pretty sure that, that that's, you know, uh, well, I know it's a part of what Hahnemann proposed is like a certain number of, you have to hit it a certain number of times and, and you know, dilute it a certain number of times and only certain kinds of dilutions are actually effective. And um, it was like six, 12 and 30 and um, 200 or something like that. Um, maybe a few other ones, but uh those that that reliance on a number of times is is ritualistic not scientific and and even the reliance on the shaking i think is ritualistic and not scientific although there are people that claim that that's that's what gives the the molecules the the energy that they need to form these these microstructures but 
you know, if these microstructures are forming based on the hydrogen bonding of water, they're, they're transient things. They last for, you know, trillions of a second. Um, they're not, you know, even if water can form these interesting chains and loops and icosahedrons, you know, transiently, that that's not really related to homeopathy because you would have to have some sort of permanence to the, the imprinting of the water. And I, I, I'm just not seeing evidence for that succession or no succession. Um, so I, I, yeah, I can't, I can't give you a logical reason for why that would be necessary. I mean, other than you mentioned, you know, if you're trying to remember something, you sort of. <laughs> yeah. We were mentioned it today, you know, sometimes you have to shake your memories. You have to sort of <laughs> your head in order to remember what you forgot. Because uh, my, you know, water memory, father's right. memory. So. Well, and, and I think, I think maybe also it, it uh, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, why doesn't, if water has a memory, why doesn't water remember everything? You know, why doesn't the water remember, you know, the water in my glass here has, has not, you know, just come straight out of my tap to me, not touching anything in between. And I do filter my water. So, you know, um, it's, it doesn't have chlorine in it, but, um, you know, it's got all kinds of other things in it. Um, it, it, it. There's other minerals that have touched it. There's, it's been in other people's bodies, maybe even dinosaurs. It's kind of a cool thought. Um, you know, so why doesn't it remember the dinosaur? Why doesn't it remember, you know, uh, a lead molecule that it encountered somewhere along the way? Why doesn't it remember those things? And, and um, you know, the, the, the strict homeopaths will say, well, it's because it, it hasn't been succussed. That, that somehow isn't a very important part of imprinting this memory on the water. So you can't, you can't talk about water having a memory unless you have that uh, succession for it. So that's why you you bang your head. Cuss you yourself there. So, Pam, <laughs> would you want to maybe just give a um, like a like a summary, and maybe your 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 concern about this for people who are looking for we we talked about last time. People want more natural remedies. They, they, they want uh, to stay away from a lot of these big pharma solutions, um, which don't necessarily treat the whole person or concern themselves with the whole person. But, you know, what would you say about homeopathy? Is that like a, a false sort of way to, to sort of solve this dilemma that we're in? Yeah, I would, I would say it is. Um you know, because even in terms of it actually working, you know, there's a number of instances where it doesn't actually work. Homeopaths in, you know, uh, will, will tell you that like, it's, it's really kind of a rare thing for somebody to just sort of be able to walk into the grocery store or pick up a remedy. And that remedy works for what, what they're, they're saying, you know, um, there's, there's homeopaths who, you know, earn part of their living by selling their own versions of the Materia Medica that make it simpler for you to be able to diagnose your symptoms at home. You know, I used to have a homeopathy book myself, but, you know, you know, and even trying to diagnose your own symptoms at home, you know, there's always like a, an explanation that's offered for like why it doesn't work. Well, you, you just picked the wrong remedy, you know, or you touched the pellets or you didn't put it under your tongue or you drank water too soon or you drank caffeine too soon or you, you did whatever, or, or you feel worse because the medicine medicine is working, <laughs> you know, which is the same thing that we hear about and laugh about because of the vaccines. But, but, you know, people who, who kind of justify, well, you know, homeopathy works, but it's not really working, you know, in this situation, or it's not really working for this person. And it's, you know, or it's making them feel worse. We'll, we'll say, well, it's because the medicine is working. Um, you know, so, so it doesn't always work. It's not always effective. And, and if it is effective, 
it's not effective through a reasonable biological basis. It's, it's, you know, like we talked about, it's, it's either working, you know, at best it's working through the placebo effect, you know, and so you've got a positive expectation of, of, of getting better and you do, you know, at it, it, or it's just not working at all. And, you know, you have regression to the mean where, you know, you just, you seek treatment when you're feeling bad. And if, when you're feeling your worst, you're, you're more likely to get better. And so you, you feel like you got better and, and it really is just a post hoc ergo proctor hoc fallacy, you know, like I took the pill and then I got better, but really I was getting better anyway. Um, you know, or it's, or it's just that you're not exposing yourself to alcohol or caffeine or whatever, but, but worst case, um, it is working through an occult vital force and, you know, we, we talked a little bit last time about, you know, just a few of my own experiences with the effects of occult vital forces. And if this is how it's working, this is why I care. Um, because if it's, if it's just, if it's just quackery, you know, a fool and his money are soon parted. And I'm sorry that you were parted, but like, you know, you can't take money with you anyway. But if we're talking about people's souls, um, it's, it's a much bigger deal. And, and that's, that's why I'm willing to do this because I know that um, what I'm saying is not popular. What I'm saying is something that, that people, um, you know, can have, they, people have very deep attachments uh, to homeopathy, you know, as we were talking about earlier, you know, if you, if you try to show somebody that something they're attached to is, is, um, you know, not good for them, like trying to explain to somebody that rock music is bad for you, or the Lord of the Rings is bad for you, or, um, you know, that, that, that evolution isn't true. Any of these things, people have these sort of, um, entrenched attachments to either the way that they have been taught or trained or the way that they think things work or the, or the things that they just like. And, you know, those, those things are hard to deal with. They, they, um, they don't, uh, go towards making me a a popular and well-loved person by all. (laughs) Um, you know, not that that's my goal necessarily either, but we appreciate (laughs) and your book Fascination the Catholic perspective. Maybe there, maybe there's a, a homeopathy book coming out in the future, perhaps. So maybe. Well, we'll see. I, I don't think it will be um, backed by the Colby well, Center, unfortunately. As well received, yes. So, but Let's uh, ask some questions. We have. Uh, if anybody has any questions, please feel free. Someone did write a, a question and almost uh, sort of a, a good observation, really. And this one says, Pam, uh, placebos may sometimes quote unquote work as does, for example, visits with doctors, with good bedside manner, et cetera. We were, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Possibly due simply uh, to less stress levels, true. Right. Stress causes inflammation, and inflammation can be the cause of many diseases. Right, so, yeah, no, it, we were talking even this morning about, um, you know, my, my own experience has been very colored by my, by my ankle injury. And, you know, I can attest that, you know, the, the first year and five months where basically doctors just sort of looked at me, scratched their head and said, I don't know why you have this particular constellation of symptoms. And, you know, you're obviously in pain, but like, I can't do anything for you. I I don't know. I don't know what's wrong and I can't really give you anything that will help. And so I had to, you know, I was going to say walk out of their office, but I couldn't walk. I had to crutch out of their office, um, with, with sort of no hope of, of anything getting better. And, and it, definitely the experience of having a diagnosis, just the, um, the lifting of the mental load of, of like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know if I will ever get better, if I get better, when I will get better. Um, 
you know, that, that's a huge, that, that mental game, especially in terms of chronic illness or chronic injury is huge in terms of, in terms of health impact. And so if you can do something that alleviates that, that mental game, that, that, that being in your head about your injury all the time. Yeah. That's, it's not unbelievable or, or unreasonable at all that that would have positive physiological effects just from the reduction of the stress. Well said. Another question, Pam, father, this person asked, can the argument be made that while homeopathy was developed by a Freemason and an occultist, what about going to allopathic doctors who are pro-abortion, pharmaceuticals and vaccines developed by very moral means, none are clean. So what's the difference? So you have obviously some contact with the more traditional allopathic sort of practitioners, doctors, but a lot of them are pushing vaccines on people that are with tainted sort of backgrounds. And then also they might uh, re make referrals for abortion versus the sort of Freemasonic past of homeopathy. Right, so, so there's, there's a distinction that has to be made between the origin and the practice, right? Um, so the origin of allopathic medicine is not a cult. It, it might be incorrect. It might be, you know, um, unjustifiable, but it's, it's not connected to something directly occult. And you could even make the argument that it's evolutionary. And so like in that way, it's connected to something that's atheist or something like that, but it's, it's not directly influenced by, you know, an overarching commitment to Satanism, which is what Freemason is, Freemasonry is. And so like, there's a huge distinction that has to be made there. Um, but, but then the, the, you know, we've talked about vaccination. The vaccination has a very problematic origin. I've talked a lot about that. Um, and that to me is sufficient justification to say that we re we need to rethink this paradigm. We need to let this go. Um, you know, so I don't, I don't see how the two positions are, are, contradictory. They're actually one and the same. If you're looking at the origin of something, you're saying that this, this originated incorrectly. This is not justifiable based on the current scientific evidence. And, you know, when with the connection between vaccines and abortion, um, you know, you do have, you do have a direct, I would say a direct occult connection there. Um, because I think there's a direct occult connection between abortion, which is effectively child sacrifice. Um, and, and, and the occult, and you know, if you're using those things in vaccines, then obviously these these are um, you know problematic. I would say for the same reason that homeopathy is. I mean, I, I so I don't I don't really see what, <laughs> like what question is really being asked, other than kind of a an oblique way to say, oh well, isn't homeopathy okay because allopathy is also bad no, it's, it's not. And you can't say that something is okay because something else is bad because you have to look at how is it bad? In what way is it bad? Is its origin bad? Is its practice bad? Are both bad? Um, you know, I don't, I don't believe in putting toxins in your body. You know, I don't, I don't think we should use mercury fillings in your mouth or, you know, I don't, I don't think you should use powerful drugs when, when natural remedies are reasonable, you know, but that, that, is, is very different than, or different from, um, you know, saying that, that these drugs were developed somehow in connection with, with someone who claimed that this method was revealed to him by God, and it obviously was not. Mm -hmm. 
is that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a theologian here. So you know, this really isn't necessarily my question to answer, but, sure. but that's, that, that would make sense to me. Mm-hmm. And then someone asks, uh, or this makes a statement, really, the strange esoteric origins of homeopathy seem oddly similar to the origins of AA and the 12 step program. So that's, that's another topic in the future for sure, because <laughs> there's something there because um, uh, I think, I think it, to look into the background of some of those founders of AA, I think would be important. Right. Um, and, and I know that, you know, I know that it's, it's not impossible for, for something positive to come from somebody who's not Catholic, for example, you know, like people who are not Catholic have come up with, with great discoveries in science. But, you know, if you look at people who are actively, you know, engaged in occult practices, um, you know, like Descartes or, or even uh, Terre de Chardin, you know, um, the fruit, the fruit is, is always bad. Mm-hmm. Right. Their, their discoveries are, well, even, you know, um, the, the guy who uh, invented Mormonism too, was it Joseph Smith? Joseph Smith, yes. Yes, yes. You know, so it, it's, it's but, just... But, but, by the way, Freemason. Yes. Mormonism is Freemasonry. Right. It's, it's high-end liturgical Freemasonry. Their, right. their inner sanctums are, are like Freemasonic sort of temples of sorts, so... Pam, I want to thank you as always. It's just fantastic uh, what you've been able to put together, uh, both in regards to vaccines as well, the COVID vaccine in particular, but also homeopathic sort of um, practice and some concerns that you have about it, that we should all have about it. I really think, I, I, I do think that. So um, any, any final word that you want to uh, give uh, besides don't sure. Um, I'd actually, I'd, I'd like to close, if I may, with three quick quotations. Um, the first is from, uh, and I'm probably going to pronounce his name, but George Fetoulis's, uh Homeopathy, Medicine for the New Man. Um, he begins a chapter uh, titled Coming of the New Age, um, and his last chapter is Promise for the New Age, and he says, the real purpose of homeopathy is to open the higher centers or the brain for spiritual and celestial influx. The purpose is to become one with yourself, one with the universe through your mind. Another homeopath, um, James T. Ken, in The Science and Art of Homeopathy, says a truly homeopathic doctor is initiated into this transcendental spiritualist world. He must have knowledge of the four states of matter, the solid, liquid, gaseous, and radiant states. And so it's not, these are not old, these are current homeopaths saying, you know, the spiritual nature of this thing. And then finally, um, Father Larry Hogan, who's the chief exorcist of the Archdiocese of Vienna, when he was answering questions raised concerning the nature of homeopathy, simply said that homeopathy is magic, and he would not recommend anyone to use it. So, well said, well said. And, and, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, for those who want to avoid big pharma, homeopathy is big pharma. It's a fifteen billion dollar industry, um, and it may be very well quackery and even worse it could be a cult um and we thank pam for opening our eyes i think to some of this uh uh concern so let's end with a prayer in the name of the father son the holy ghost amen, amen. glory be to the father and to the son to the holy ghost 
as it was in the beginning, beginning is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. World without end. Amen. May be a blessing through the session of our Blessed Mother, Good Saint Joseph, through Gardenies and Saints Benedict, Sio de Pendis, Patris et Fidei, et Spirit Sancti de Supervos, et Mani et Semper. Amen. Thank you, Pam. Thank you, everybody. God bless. Thank you, Father.